It's hard to imagine a world without music. For over 35,000 years, music has contributed to culture and enhanced our life on Earth. I'm Robin Applewood, producer, musician, DJ, sound engineer, and promoter with over 20 years of experience in the business. I interview other professionals from the Bay Area music scene and beyond. Meet the extraordinary humans that make up this intricate and robust industry. The talented and creative humans that hustle day in and day out to bring sounds to our earbuds and produce the live music experiences that become some of the best moments of our lives. I'm here with Tomas Salcedo. He's a guitarist and a music business development strategist. He works with Fantastic Negrito and Cigar Box Man out of Chile. Uh, really happy to have you here. Hey, Tomas, how are you? Good. How are you? I'm doing well, man. Thanks. Um, so I'm just going to cut straight to the chase here because I, I'm, I'm imagining that a lot of the people listening right now are like, music business development strategist. What is that? Um, would you like to elaborate <laughs> a little bit? on what that is? Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I kind of fell into this role through numerous projects that I worked on that all needed a bit of help in the business development department. Um, the first uh, band that I, I mean, not the first band that I ever played in, but one of the first bands that I sort of got my feet wet in the whole thing was uh, this band Antiochia. And uh, I jumped into th that band. I'm sure you're familiar with them too, right? They, you guys played they, the, they, the Bay Vibes Festival. That's yes, how, that was my yes, introduction exactly. to you. Yep. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Yeah. So, you know, uh, we uh, at that point, we had actually already been touring for a bit, but I basically jumped on like right before th we were about to go on like a, a nationwide tour that included all these different cities. It'd been like the biggest tour or anything that I'd ever been on. And I realized that they didn't have... Uh, such a system yet for determining like how, for example, money was going to get distributed and how we were going to plan our route from city to city. It was kind of like everybody flying by the seat of their pants. And so me being a little bit more on the, on the anxious side in those kinds of circumstances, like maybe wanting a little bit of structure to it, I started to create the structure mm -hmm. and I started to do things like, uh, you know, project our you know, gas mileage and how much we would spend on gas and then how much we'd have left over based on the guarantees and with the projected merch sales and then whether we could pay out a per diem or not. And then I kind of like got this formula behind it and I showed it to everybody. Everybody was like, oh, that's great. You know, we, we hadn't thought about doing that. So I, in a way, I look, I look at there as the beginnings of what I thought of as business development. And then now... Uh, uh, through all of the projects that I've worked with, I've kind of gained a certain level of competence in the best practices on social media, the Facebook ad platform and the Google ads platform, Google Analytics, and tying them all together uh, when you know we want to develop strategies to drive traffic to Spotify or to drive traffic to a new YouTube video or to drive traffic to a landing page or a contest or we want to solicit help from a brand partner. Um, more of this happens with Fantastic Negrito, but I've advised other artists with with that sort of thing as well. I, uh, uh, you know, I kind of I kind of develop a how and, and uh, a method and, you know, am, am able to see that method through from top to bottom and then report back on how that method worked. Um, so, uh, so with Fantastic Negrito, that was, uh, you know, where I've kind of like been able to even bounce a lot of those ideas off of larger teams that, that had been doing that in, in the space for longer and validate a lot of my ideas of how to do things and gain a few new ideas about how to do things. And so in addition to Fantastic Negrito, I also consult with other artists 
as you mentioned, Cigar Box Man, uh, another artist named Pretty Fire, uh, uh, been done done some with uh, Los Racas, with Los Cafeteras, um, with uh, different artists that have come into my midset now and again that have asked for specific, like, how do we do this and how do we do that? And I've given them as best a how as I can. But, you know, every artist that comes to me is sort of in a different place. Right. in their career so what they need is different mm-hmm. and so there's not this like one size fits all and even if they were in the same place in their career not every artist operates the same way appeals to the same people has the same behavior on social media so i find it's always different and i find that that's what has made some of the insight that i lend to people's projects um a bit more valuable than what, say, these larger agencies that are really tailored to make you do one thing. You know, like, like I'll look at, um, uh, uh, I'll look at, for example, a, a a an ad campaign that will come through my feed, and I'll kind of like, no, oh, I think that was Gupta Media, you know, and, or I think that I think this might be, um, you know, this agency or that agency that that sometimes they take over an artist's social media and then it's like it all looks a certain way, it all feels a certain way, and it kind of dilutes a little bit about what the artist is about. And um, so I, I don't do that. I kind of like try to creep into whatever an artist is already doing and advise on that and help amplify that, help push that forward mm. and see how that works. It's kind know? of like quality over quantity. It's a customized, uh, focused um, service to, to tailor fit. Yeah, yeah. You know, as one would hope that any sort of label or, you know, marketing agency or rights management agency, whatever, whatever organization you bring into your fold as an artist, and I deal with all of them, you know, brand, uh, brand partnership facilitation agencies, like, like, those things all exist. And um, they all you want them to take you seriously enough as an artist to really profile you and not just bring you into as another line item in their company, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And um, so I try to just do that. And I don't have like like a large team. I have a couple of people that I work with to do specific things, but I don't have a large team that could take on artists that, you know, need that sort of support. Um, so therefore, like everything I do is kind of like put together for the artist that I'm putting it together for. But there's such a demand for what you do. I mean, uh, as an artist myself, and I know a lot of artists and I hear this conversation come up time and time again, it's probably the most common uh, conversation that I, I have with my friends in the music industry. And it's about like, you know, how, how yeah, just adapting to cr- to the creative side into like the more marketing and like kind of right brain left brain thing, and you actually are like kind of a fairy wand. Like you're you're um, you, you it's there. You're in high demand. <laughs> what you do? I mean, yeah. Well, I'm just thinking right now. Like uh, even for myself, I'm just like, wow. I wish I had that. <laughs> and we've talked about right, it before well, you know, too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Totally. And you know, I think that uh, one thing that you know, artists that are that have not yet gone above a certain level in their career will often be be held back by the the ongoing mistake of trying to do everything themselves you know so they'll be like oh you know i have a show 
you know, let's say when shows were still a thing. And they will be. <laughs> you know, I have a show, so I, I've got to make a flyer and I've got to, you know, hire the musicians and I've got to uh, advance the show with the venue. And I've got to, and like, what's all this I've got to, you know, and I want to talk to them and be like, listen, you know, work with somebody who can make your flyer. Uh, it, it, you know, unless you are actually really keen on doing this yourself, hire a musical director who like literally puts your band together. I mean, again, maybe you have your band and you, that's what you, that's how you do it. But a lot of artists, they're, they're just them and they might roll with a different keyboard player every time or a different drummer or a different format every time. Right. Mm -hmm. So if that's the case, I would say like you want to have people on your team that you're delegating stuff to and uh, and no artist can can really break um, any level of of success unless they start having a team around them that works with them like that. And, and you know, that can be a really scary step to take for an artist because being an artist really involves a lot of vulnerability and a lot of insecurity. And at the same time, there has to be this, this veneer of confidence behind what you do that, that gets people inspired to want to join the team with you and gets your audience inspired to want to join in the message with you. And so I think that that balance is hard to find in one person, right? Mm -hmm. So, so that's another reason why having a manager, for example, or somebody who, negotiates with promoters on your behalf or who advances your ideas to a brand partner or who decides on what your ad spend is going to be for social media like all of that stuff is going to be much more precisely calculated by somebody who assesses your value from the outside and doesn't you know suffer from that feeling of like well am i this good or the conversely suffer from the you know, thinking that you're way better and way more valuable than you are, you know, which yeah. can also happen where an artist thinks, well, hey, you know, my show is worth like 10 grand. And it's like, actually, but you don't sell more than 50 tickets. So, you know, your $10,000 show is going to basically get you blacklisted from every venue that you sell it to. And, um, and you know, so, so it's really important, I think, to start to develop a team and look at your the steps you take in your career as uh, as accompanied by more people like, oh, you know, once we got to this level, we hired this person. And once we got to this level, we hired that person. And now we have this person and that person. And and that that, you know, is what helps you really grow. If you're trying to do everything solo, it's going to be an uphill battle and it's going to be difficult to overcome either you're, you know, being being too trigger shy to take the big dives, you know, the big investments or being overly confident and selling yourself in ways that aren't appropriate yet to the level that you actually are at, you know? So it's really good to get the feedback of, of professionals, you know, I want to say such as myself, but you know, it's, but I'm not, but even I wouldn't be the only member of my team. You know what I mean? I would hope that, you know, and I, and I work with, for example, graphic designers or video editors, um, a lot of different mixers and engineers that, that I, that I get feedback on mixes too. I send mixes and have them send it back to me. You know, I, I try to, um, part of tailoring what I do to an artist is also tailoring the team and being like, okay, you know, I think so-and-so could have a really good visual take on what you're trying to do with this album or so-and-so really seems like they could mix you at the, in the way that would best profile your work and, you know, work from there. That's so, I guess 
this all sounds so amazing. And I think I want to address like maybe an elephant in the room for some of like the artists that might be listening. And it's like, how does that, how do you make that, uh, you know, financially viable or how does it, how do you, how does it make financial sense? Um, like in context hmm. of this day and age? Well, I mean, this day and age has like been financially a big question mark for a lot of people because you know, most people are expecting to make money off of shows. However, you know, when shows were going on, a lot of artists complained that they don't make enough money off of shows, which is another issue, right? Like that you would address in a different way. But I would say right now, starting a, starting a career or, or just having a career in general as an artist is going to involve a level of investment that you want to have some amount of money saved up for. Like I, I would equate it to starting a restaurant. You want to basically have the you want to have the tables and the chairs and the staff and the food ready to go before you can start charging people real money to eat it, you know? Mm-hmm. So so there there is there is that. I would say like listen, what do you have saved up and what do you feel comfortable spending and then work from there. Mm-hmm. And then on the other hand, I would say um part part of making it making the financial sense is also establishing the priorities. So if I were just taking somebody in, uh, you know, right off the street, like I don't really know them that well, or, or I, I know their work, but I, we haven't worked together yet, let's say. Mm-hmm. And I would say, well, let's look at your social media, like what's going on on your social media. And I would see like, okay, let's say they post very consistently, but they don't grow their accounts very consistently. Okay, well, we can put together a growth strategy. I have a few different methods that I, that I use for growth. Um, they cost different amounts. But they cost something, right? I can't do them for free, not because I don't want to, but also because the the social media actually wants your money. So you got to spend something, right? So you might say, like, are you comfortable spending $10 a day? Okay, $10 a day. Well, the, with $10 a day, we could expect a result like this. Now, let's say let's say I listen to to your music and I'm like, you know, I think that the mixes really need to be addressed. Let's do something about these mixes. Okay, so I'll I'll start to audition different uh, different mixers and say, hey, you know, what would you do with this track? What would you do with this track? What would you... And then try to get get the right one that would fit this artist and then be like, okay, how much would you be willing to spend on these mixes? Are you able to, you know, spend this much? Okay, well, for that, we might be able to get these three songs mixed. And then if we get these three songs, let's develop a release plan around those three songs that now ties into the social media plan that we do. And, and from there, basically, you know, I'm like thinking about, well, what do I see going on right now? What are your objectives? And then based on that, let's establish priorities and then take whatever amount that you feel like you can invest and and put it towards that 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 goal. And And, you know, even right there, like the way I'm trying to break it down for you is almost like uh, whether or not the 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 advice that I would give you would be the perfect advice or the optimal advice. Like in my opinion, it is. But but whether or not it would be, it's almost like it's really important for you as an artist to be having that conversation with somebody. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And like like again, saying, well, what is your goal? Okay, you think about it, you articulate your goal. Okay, what is going on in your social media right now? You think about it. Do I have a content strategy or don't I? You know, mm-hmm. do I or do I just fly by the seat of my pants? 
Um, what is my objective with my mixes? Okay, have I thought about that or did I just kind of level stuff out and make it, or, or did I just find the person who would mix it for the cheapest? Which is another thing that, oh, but they only charge me a hundred bucks a mix. It's like, well, a lot of people who are really putting successful mixes out there are not charging a hundred dollars a mix. So we got to think about that. You know, what are you comfortable in, in doing, you know, right. that's where the priorities come in. Exactly. Exactly. Now there are, you know, there are plenty of like, I, uh, and I'd imagine this is a case for you because you, you mixed a ton of records and, you know, I've listened to your mixes actually, and I, and, and they're really good. So you, you might not need that kind of help. Right. Mm -hmm. But even then I would say like, okay, but it's great to have somebody who mixes in a totally different style and at least be sending the mixes to them and getting feedback. You know, mm -hmm. I'm sure you already, you already have people that you bounce your stuff off of and, yeah, and they, you know, so, so th at that point, maybe I wouldn't search for that member of the team. I would be like, maybe you need support in the, you know, having your booking sheet, your EPK and your visual assets all up to date and organized. Okay. So we're going to search out that person and, um, like that, you know, I, I basically see what, where, where the holes are and then how much can we put towards, um, plugging them up, you know? Mm -hmm. That's crucial. And at the very least, I know that you offer consultations. So even if a package maybe doesn't fit a certain artist's, you know, financial situation, it's just so invaluable to like get your feedback and your perspective on what, how to empower that, you know, particular artist to do it, their, do it themselves. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Having the conversation with somebody like somebody who will sit down on a weekly basis or on a daily basis, like whatever, whatever you feel like you can, whatever your, your flow is that you can work with, mm -hmm. somebody will sit down with you and discuss like, okay, based on what you have and based on what you're capable of doing, what are the, what are the next steps that you should take if you have this long-term objective in mind or this medium-term objective, whatever that is, you know? Yeah. So what do you, and so just yeah. sitting down mm -hmm. and having that conversation. Yeah. Uh -huh, go ahead. Oh, I'm just wondering, like, I, I want to stay on this kind of like financial piece just for a moment because it seems like it's mm -hmm. so important. Like um, what, like, and so let's look at like, at kind of like the, the goals and, and the outcomes and like, what are you seeing? Like, how are those investments like coming back to artists these days that you're seeing? Cause I know think we talked about it. Things have changed. We all know it. And it's like a lot of artists mm -hmm. are moving more to like the digital space, but then it also feels like it's oversaturated, you know, because everyone's focusing on the digital space. And so, you know, like what, what, yeah, how are you, you know, kind of looking at that, that back end, the return of investment for artists and where is that coming from mm. these days that you notice? Well, you know, I think that like, um, there, one good thing about the digital space is that everything is pretty measurable, right? So you see in numbers how many views you got, how much engagement you got, and then how much, uh, how, what that engagement turned into. So for example, if I was going to put together a digital marketing campaign for somebody, I would hope that, you know, for example, I wouldn't generally drive traffic to a Spotify link. Why? Because you might you might be able to, you know, run an ad on on say Facebook or whatever, and you'll see that that ad got let's say five thousand views. Okay, and the views of those views maybe five hundred people clicked through. So okay, you got five hundred clicks on your Spotify link, and then they got to your Spotify link, and that maybe only translated into 
a hundred people that actually listened to the song for long enough to generate an additional listen. And you'll know that based on the analytics in the back end of Spotify that that, that funnel happened, right? So in, in the e-commerce space, they talk about funnels all the time in terms of where you grab your potential interested customer and then when you converted them into an actual sale being like the narrowest part of the funnel. So that fun, same type of concept exists in the music space. Um, only generally, we're looking at funnels that, you know, we're, we're customizing what our objective with the funnel actually is. The thing about Spotify is that it's a, it's a, you know, a, a bottomless pit, let's say, because once somebody even listens to your track, there's nothing you can do with that information. You can't like get, get them in any other way. So, sure. so, so to, to your question, I would like, I would want to see, again, how many views, how many clicks you got, and then what can we do with those clicks? So there's like tools with which you can have, instead of sending somebody to Spotify, you send them to a landing page or you send them to a link tree uh, or spread of links that that are going to allow them to access whatever point of point they want to access your music through. Maybe they want to be a YouTube subscriber or maybe they want to be uh, downloading your music. Maybe they want to access you on iTunes, whatever it is. So you give them all those options and then anybody who hits that landing page, then you can take that profile from, from them and you can remarket to them on Facebook as somebody who not only uh, viewed your content, but also engaged and clicked on your content. And then when they clicked on your content, you put them in a special category of people that you market to later when you have something more special that you want to do. So you release your first track and you get people to this landing page. We find out how many people actually landed on that page. And of the people that landed on that page, we're putting a spe- them in a special category that we're marketing your next video to, for example. So you're, you're putting out a video for that track that you put out. Great. We're going to send it to those people first. Right. And we're going to see, hopefully those people are going to actually go watch the video. We're going to do some kind of messaging on social media to get them to comment on it. As they comment on it, that's going to trigger the YouTube algorithm to say, Hey, we want to suggest this to more people like that then we can run YouTube interruption ads to those people. I mean, I'm, I'm going a little bit deeper into the methods, which is, um, you know, uh, it, it's a thing that you, through trial and error, discover how to actually execute on the, the back end of the ad platforms. But when you, when, you, when you start taking this logical approach to uh, what you want to do with the people that actually engage with your content, then ultimately you arrive at, okay, do I have their email? Are they following me on all my social media platforms and are they engaging with my content? And then that you would turn into, can I sell these people tickets and can I sell them merch? Can I sell mm-hmm. them a Patreon subscription? Okay. You know what I mean? Like you, you, you want to convert them eventually into paid, uh, uh, paid customers. And um, uh, I would say having their email is the highest level of non-paid engagement that you can get with somebody because generally we're not dealing with people's phone numbers. You can, you know, but I actually have tried to do that before with an artist where they wanted to advertise a, you know, text-based system and Facebook really didn't like that. They thought that we were trying to scam people or something like that and they disabled their ad account for a while, which was, uh, you know, a whole pain in the ass yeah uh, hopefully i can say ass oh sure yeah but basically but, but basically you know like we wanna I, I i i'm generally driving towards trying to get people's emails 
And then once we have people's emails and we have them solidly on your email list, then we're trying to turn them into paid customers either through your merch, through your, uh, through you know your live stream events. You know, once you have ticketed shows, your ticketed shows, etc. I guess like you're, as you're talking, like you know, you went down kind of the rabbit hole a little bit, and I'm I'm just like my mind is spinning because I came from a generation where it was like you play a show. You sell a CD, you get an email, and then you tell them when the next show is, and you sell them the CD, and then you, you know, and we, mm-hmm. there's so much more like expansiveness now to like, I mean, in a good way where like we can reach so many different people through all these different platforms. It also feels mm-hmm. like way more overwhelming than the, like the simplicity of like what it used to be. Um, mm-hmm. And also that like there was a direct sale, you know, it's like they come to a show and you sell CDs. I remember even like when I was, just out of college, I was playing in a band called Dr. Masseuse and we were playing around uh, Mm -hmm. the East Bay and we like had a pretty, you know, nice following and we would make a lot of money off of CD sales at our shows. And um, it's like, it felt so good to like play a show and then you get paid and then you're like making three or 400 bucks on top of that from direct CD sales. And then you go home with all these emails Mm -hmm. and it was just, it felt so much more, I don't know. Um, it just, it's different, you know, than it is now. Um, and it's also similar because you're saying the value of having the email and keeping them in the loop, it's the same, but it's totally like different at the same time. It, it, it's the same. And I think that there's just a little bit more, uh, not a little bit more, there's a lot more potential to access and access people that are not within your own physical proximity, right? So you're playing around the East Bay. You can really, I mean, how many shows can you do per month in one market? You know what I mean? Like if you, if you, even if you do San Francisco and Oakland, like back when shows were a thing, if you, if you're doing, you know, Oakland one month and San Francisco the next month, then you're maxing out on, you know, your, your potential draw in either place, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, then, then you're, you're relying on other, other promoters or other other mechanisms to get interest into your show that will ultimately uh, expose you to newer audiences within the same geographic space. But what if we could take that further and we could have you, you know, we could have you doing live streams that are targeting a New York audience, a Chicago audience, an Austin audience. What if we had your video premiering in these other markets first and getting this interest elsewhere, getting interest even outside of the country, right? Mm -hmm. And you can have those people then becoming a part of your social media world, becoming a part of your uh, email list, becoming a part of your YouTube world. If your content is engaging enough and it speaks to whoever is, is seeing it, now it's a little bit more of an open playing field for that. Whereas before, I think you had to kind of... Uh, you really had to be there. You know, the expectation was people aren't really going to take you seriously unless they've seen you live. And now people aren't really going to take you seriously unless they see you have like a really big social media, uh, uh, you know, following and in a, in a, in a, a, you know, a meaningful social media strategy in place. So, so it's really changed a lot, but it, it, it allows you to do a bit more. And, you know, for example, there's, the idea that gets thrown around and and it's sort of a list that gets updated every year but of trigger cities which like you know in in uh, in the youtube space there's a certain uh, subset of cities and then spotify there's a different subset but the idea is basically the same which is there are certain cities within which when stuff is trending, it tends to be a predictor for how the rest of the world or the rest of the country or whatever is going mm. to take on, take to that content. And okay. so, you know, 
people people basically use those lists then to say, well, I'm going to try to see whether I can break this video in a particular place first and then, you know, have, have it become relevant content there. And then as it becomes relevant content there, I'm going to then market it to this other market that I know I want to get to because I can sell a show in San Francisco or Santa Cruz or L.A., um, you know, once my video is popular in Chicago and Austin, for example. Um, and so that strategies like that didn't really start to make sense until within the last five years, I would say. But since people have started to implement them, they've become more and more refined to the point where now, you know, you'll have record labels that base their entire strategy on some kind of external validation of an artist and then bring them into their own community with all this like, hey, I just, you know, got this single big in New York or we just got picked up by this radio in this other place. And then, you know, they're they're in whatever market they're actually from. People are starting to get to know them because of that. Mm -hmm. You know, it used to be, um, uh, you know, a, a specific it used to be necessary for an artist to become relevant in their market first. You know, like right. an artist that was from Seattle really needed to be like accepted by the Seattle scene before people uh, external to that market were going to take them seriously. And now I don't think it's that way anymore. I think that you you can kind of again you can just go for the whole where you can go for where you think you will hit the best and then hit there mm -hmm. and then start hitting in other places. You know. Yeah, it used to be like you build up you know your fan base in the bay area till you hit what they used to call the ceiling you know the bay area ceiling and uh mm -hmm. and i was in a band that hit that ceiling at, at one point and then you start you know touring around california and then you like go kind of more like the west coast and, and then you start touring out you know and so to to think about how much easier it is to like not have to do those like tours that you and i you know did that were you know you're all like a tw 10 guys sleeping on top of each other sweaty like you know it's, it's yeah st yeah stinky van <laughs> cluttered crowd and, and, and in part it's because like you know because you and i are probably when we were younger we wanted to do that stuff right. more that's true and and you know but at the same time like uh and, and of course like i miss it too in certain ways like i i mean i miss touring with fantastic negrito too but touring with antioquia had its own charm where mm -hmm. we were really like you know just living completely in the moment mm -hmm. but I think that there's just more there's more to it now that you can that you can accomplish and uh I think that the options being more open are kind of like a positive thing. And I, I think that, you know, we get and I, I see this kind of like on the back and forth of social media a lot, that, you know, this kind of like waxing over the glory days. You know, people talk about, well, in the 90s, you used to be able to do this and you used to be able to do that as though it was way better because there were record labels that actually invested money in artists. And I kind of like, I don't know about those specific people who make those comments, whether they're old enough to actually remember. But I kind of think if you went back in time and you tried to live out your career as an artist, then you would experience the same type of frustrations that people talk about now, you know, like they like the typical like thing that I hear all the time is like, oh, Spotify doesn't pay artists enough. Spotify is like really a shitty platform because it doesn't pay artists enough. And I was like, when did any platform pay artists enough? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like compared compared to what? And then then I I try I you know I try to like like go 
a little bit further down the 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 reasoning with people sometimes who who you know really criticize what the digital space is like. Well, you know, record labels used to invest money in artists. It's like they used to invest money that they expected to recoup, and then artists would end up in debt. So how far in debt do you want to go? Now is a question that you can answer for yourself versus then was a question that a record label would answer on your behalf. Mm -hmm. And as far as they're concerned, you would go as far into debt as you could go because they're going to recoup that money with interest anyway. And, you know, I I actually have a good friend who uh, toured in that era with a band that was up and coming that incurred a whole lot of debt. And luckily they were not, you know, they were not part of the actual debt, you know, acquisition they were part they were like a hired gun on that gig and they said you know that they had five star hotel rooms and they had a tour van that costed a thousand bucks a day and a sound uh person that was charging them you know a couple thousand dollars a week and all this stuff and then one day they realized like wow we're hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt and we're one year into our album cycle you know what I mean? Yeah. And our album hasn't sold more than 10,000 copies. Brilliant. I don't think that that was a glory days for anybody. You know what I mean? That was like, you know, a precarious living the same way it can be now. So I think it's good to keep perspective on those things because right now I don't think that we actually have – right now we have a lot more tools at our disposal. Let's put right. it that way. Yep. That's for sure. So you, I, I love how passionate you are about – all this and you sound like you really know what you ta- you're talking about and um you know it's it's definitely inspiring to i don't know hear your yeah to hear your perspective on it all and i, I wonder like so you're right also a musician um guitarist used to play in antiochia is when i first saw you and then with fantastic negrito and um what like are you working on anything these days um musically or have you has that kind of taken more of a backseat to doing this promotion and marketing um, not really. I mean, like I, I get a pretty consistent trickle of artists that, that I have worked with at some point that just send me tracks and I send guitars back to them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I don't, I don't know if it, it would be like I'm working on a specific album, but for example, uh, there's, uh, this, um, Zimbabwean singer named PY that I just did a track for basically produced the track from top to bottom. And, uh, it, that the one that you mastered, yeah, oh, yeah. and and that was that's actually <laughs> that was cool. it's actually a cover of a of another like another Zimbabwean song that is that gained a lot of popularity. So yeah. she wanted to do her version of it, and and so I just you know I kind of like went into production mode, did the whole thing, and then um, I get calls like that. You know, I did a, a track earlier this year with Mario Silva. Um, I did uh, this uh, this um, other Nigerian uh, artist that that I know that does like a lot of like gospel like he's actually in the religious music genre but in Nigeria and releases all his music there and I recorded a couple tracks with him earlier this year and uh, just stuff from home you know like I'm always working on stuff now I also I also do my own music and I like write a lot of songs and then I sit on them I don't actually release them until like I feel like I'm good and ready Mm -hmm. and uh and that's kind of like you know like as you write songs I'm sure you know this because you write a lot of songs you you write them and then it's almost like you go through this really cathartic period that sometimes can last a week and sometimes it can last a few months. It can last whatever where you're just like, oh, my God, this song is occupying all of my in- my attention and I've just got to like finish 
these lyrics and get this vocal melody right and I've got to put these harmonies on it and I've got to add these layers on it and you just keep on working on it, working on it, and then you have this finished product and then you kind of sit there and be like, okay, now when do I actually want to put this out? And usually... I, I sit on that question for a while because I'll just do it when the time feels right. And I'll do it when it when it like makes some kind of sense, you know? Um, and and I think that for me, like the the whole being in the studio and v- like vibing and writing, you know, arranging, producing a track is my the my the thing I'm most excited about. Like yeah. that's what I really love to do. I hear that. And uh I've been uh, working recently with uh, this artist called Cigar Box Man, which you mentioned at the beginning. He's from Chile. He's got his uh, uh, a really interesting deal out. He the Cigar Box guitar that he plays is something that he makes himself out of recycled materials, and he plays it kind of like a lap steel guitar. Oh uh, yeah, gets this really interesting tone Was he out on of NPR, it. NPR Tiny Desk at some point. Uh, I think he did a submission for uh-huh. it, but I, okay. he hasn't been on on the actual like thing. But he's done the the cigar box, you know, the NPR Tiny Desk contest submission. Awesome. But uh, um, the the you know we connected while I was in Chile. I was in Chile for for like all 2019, uh, dealing with some family issues and um you know like like uh reconnecting with with people there because i actually grew up there i lived there from when i was 11 to when i was 18 and um while i was there i met him and you know we actually did a bunch of gigs together and he is uh got his band that is actually you know they're doing quite well they're they're like on uh universal music group they have like some kind of release deal with them Mm. uh at least within chile and um, and then he's do, done a few like international shows, and then he came here to do to do like, you know, he's basically like, hey, you know, if I went to the states, like, could we get down on something? And I was just like, well, yeah, I mean, so we uh, a couple of a couple of times while he was here, rented like an Airbnb and just like went out into the woods and and did a bunch of writing and producing, uh, demoing out of tracks and stuff like that. And then we connected with uh, my friend David Sanz at Hyde Street, and we started going there to do some sessions to, uh, you know, finish and and elaborate more on a lot of the stuff that we had written. And now we've got like like seven or eight songs that are, are just like are, are in different phases of development. And uh, uh, th- that's been kind of like what I've worked on more recently more intensely and then a lot of my my song ideas that are kind of for me i end up lending to other projects in that way and i see them as like more i I don't know maybe i like writing more for other people than i do for myself if Mm, that makes sense because i even though you know i'm like i'm like an an artist in in my own ways like i play guitar that's artistry and i write songs and that's artistry and i you know at times i I, I contribute production ideas, which has its own artistry, even though you're putting it on top of somebody else's idea. But I also like, I, I don't know that I like the spotlight as much as I would need to, to be a successful artist. You know what I mean? Like the spotlight is really like for people who feel that, that like impetus to want to entertain thousands of people at a time and be the center of attention and i've just never like been so much the center of attention to where i want to um 
where where I where I need that, you know? Yeah. And so I like I like it when I meet other people who do need that and who do want that and be like, hey, you know, you could sing this song, you know, or or hey, we could add this bridge to what you were doing and this came from a song that I did or whatever. You know what I mean? Like and it kinda it kinda gives something a home that is gonna be a little bit more uh a, a little bit more movement behind it than the movement that I would create for myself. Cause I'm just like, you know, passionate about working with other people. Right. Yeah. I was just going to say like, I, you kind of remind me of me a little bit in that way where you're just like the baseline is that you're just, you're passionate about music and helping others and community. And it's like, you're doing this, you're providing this service, which is um, super needed. And it's, you know, something that a lot of artists, you know, feel challenged with. And that's amazing that you, that you're able to, to help other artists with that. But then it comes back to the fact that like, you're passionate about music and no one wants to work with someone who's just like, I know how to market you and, you know, I'll promote you to da, 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 da. But you're like, you're just, you're a musician, you're a chill dude. Like you want to see people thrive. And, you know, I think that's beautiful, man. And, uh, really happy. We, totally. Yeah. We got to, to explore this. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And you know, it's funny, like, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with, um, uh, this podcast by Rick Beato. I love Rick Beato. You know, yeah, totally. Yeah. He's, he's great. And he's like, legit. I was, I, I listened to a couple of stories of his and how he talks about, you know, he, he's very much in a similar vein. Like he's a producer more than himself, a musician where he, you know, he writes songs for other people. He produces songs with other people. I would imagine he does a lot of giving people advice and stuff like that. And he's got a very dope YouTube channel. That's very interesting and engaging. Um, and he's a good guitar but, player. Uh, yeah, he's a great guitar player. Yep. Yeah, and and just overall musician, you know, Absolutely. like a really great musician. Mm-hmm. But but the thing that 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 I think um, helps me understand his his point of view is that he's he's one of those guys who has seen how non musician marketing people can kind of like he had he had a, a one really re, that I saw really recently that that talked about the this band that had I think they were called i9 that had impressed all these people at these showcases and it just like you know they they like sold him the first time that he heard them and he got them involved or not involved with but like seen by Trey Anastasio and John Mayer and like all these people and they were all like co-signing on this band and then he put them in front of like a record a and r person that they signed with who then was like one of these non-musician people that basically had them do a bunch of stuff that wasn't right for what they were trying to do. And they they kind of fizzled out because it was like, you know, some A&R guy trying to make decisions about how to allocate budget to something that just didn't make sense from the, from the band's point of view. I mean, like he was having... Uh, you know, a different drummer come in to do all their demos and like flying them in from wherever they lived just to record with that drummer so that it would be something to say or, you know, then rewriting all their songs and creating all these goofy arrangements that weren't what the band naturally did. Mm -hmm. And so like, you know, as, as one who's been a musician for long enough and been in the situation with bands that are, you know, co-writing albums or, or working with artists that already wrote their album and seeing, you know, what, what success kind of looks like in that regard, like how, how authentic an artist really needs to be to get any measure of success with it. I'm, I I wouldn't do stuff like that. I wouldn't endorse stuff like that. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Um, and you know, like the more and more that I hear, like I've, I was always like a super big fan of band 
documentaries and band stories, yeah. like oh, the yeah. making of documentaries and stuff like that. Totally. I used to just like binge on those. And I love those VH1 and pop-up videos. Yeah, those yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or, you know, like, um, yeah, like the, the, the documentaries where like they show like how a, a certain album was recorded. Like mm-hmm. I could watch stuff like that all day. Mm-hmm. And I see like the roles that marketing people sometimes try to play in deconstructing stuff. And it's like, those people aren't special. Like the artist is, you know, even me, if like, I'm like giving ideas, I, about arrangements or about production. I try to be really sensitive to like, you know, I think that you would achieve your your artistic statement that you're making with this more if we did it like this, mm-hmm. you know, and not be like, well, it's just got to be like this because this is how it is, you know, or anything. It's like, who knows how it really is? I think that's a very subjective thing. But at the same time, like, um, you know, the, the you got to recognize that every artist is kind of doing something special that's unique to them. And then just also think about like, well, how does this compare to other stuff that's within that genre? Like that's a, that's a very worthwhile question to ask. And I think any artist that doesn't want to ask that question is probably shooting themselves in the foot. Mm -hmm. You know, how does, how do, um, how do, uh, you know, what instrumentation am I putting on this album? Is it because this is the, these are the musicians that I, that I can find or that are willing to show up to a session? Or is it because this is how I want to actually hear this music? You know, yeah. it's a worthwhile question to ask. Oh, yeah. I see you posing that question all the time. Like you're, you're super right. active on uh, social media and, and kind of calling artists out for in that way. Like, how are you shooting yourself in the foot and how can you look at things differently? I really appreciate the way you engage just like kind of playing devil's advocate and getting people to like think about things in different ways or from a bigger picture. Totally. And, uh, well, I noticed yeah. you doing that too. Yeah. Like oh, yeah. A- just asking questions sometimes that people come back and they're, you know, it's almost like qu- questions that people don't want to ask themselves. And, to, and I'm glad that you actually mentioned that. Cause I felt every time I post one of those things on, on Facebook or whatever, I always feel like, man, why did I just post that? Everybody's <laughs> going to think I'm such an asshole. You know? <laughs> and, uh, but, but, but I also think that, yeah, like there, there's something that's always festering in my mind that I kind of want to like, you know, when, when those questions come up, like I want to, I want to address them and kind of say like, you, you know, like, like you always hear, like typical things that artists say, like we just mentioned about the Spotify, uh, the, the, you know, Spotify is shit. And oh, I always yeah. feel like I want to push back against stuff like that. Not because I love Spotify or I want to defend it, but because it's like, look at what we're capable of doing as artists right now. And like some of the most successful artists that have come up have done so in ways that completely defy what was possible before. And they've done it because of stuff like Spotify, right. you know, at the same time, like, uh, another typical one that comes up, right? People are like, well, I fucking hate auto-tune. You know, like people who use auto-tune are just hacks that don't know how to sing and blah, blah, And I'm like, okay, like I understand where that comes from. But at, this, at the same time, like, you know, Daft Punk used a vocoder and everybody thought they were geniuses. And what the hell is a vocoder if not auto-tune that you do you know the the keyboard in real time uh-huh. you know what i mean like uh-huh. or, or peter frampton <laughs> or peter frampton exactly or and then you know at the at the same time like a lot of these artists that will say i hate autotune i hate autotune i hate autotune it's like well 
I'm listening to your album and I can hear backup vocals that are out of tune. So actually, I wish you would have had some auto tune because then your record would be more marketable. You know what I mean? Or not even more marketable. It would be more pleasant to listen to. Sure. Well, pe- people kind of expect a high level of, of vocal tuning these days. You know, there's with American Idol and just this the stuff that's coming out um, in the mainstream. I think it's just so precise and so perfect that that like the cu- people's ears have kind of adjusted to that level of perfection. And so I think that it is like it feels a little daunting to like try to meet that standard, but like, Hey, if you just slap auto tune on it and like dial it in the right way and have it be that much closer, like why not? Right. <laughs> right. And then there's many, there's many cases in which auto tune is like a stylistic choice as opposed to a corrective measure. And I think that there's, there's, there's and there's all the difference in the world between those two things right like it's like there's one thing about well you want it to sound like it has auto-tune on it because the things in this genre that are being put out sound like that you know what I mean? Or, or not even because of that. That might be an external consideration, but you maybe because I, as an artist, want to sound like I've got this urban kind of, you know, crack on my voice that 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 just won't come in any other way. Like you can't sing like that. So put some auto tune on it. Why mm-hmm. not? You know, that's like it's a tool that wasn't at your disposal 30 years ago, but it is now. So let's use it. You know, and so I just see those kind of like. Those opinions go around that then I, 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 I wish that I could be like involved in the conversation in some less intrusive way than like posting a shitty comment on Facebook like, hey, you know, fuck you for not liking autotune. So then I like to come up with my little questions like, OK, is this an unpopular opinion? And I'll just say like, is autotune really that bad? And then, you know, people people let them people like generally like putting their cards on the table and agreeing or disagreeing with it, which I'm totally cool with. I also, it's another thing that you've kind of brought up about on, on social media in general. Like I, I like the idea that we don't always agree on everything. And I don't feel like anybody who doesn't agree with me is necessarily wrong or that they are, are, you know, disagreeing in bad faith. Right. Yeah. There's nuances within all of that. Yeah. Right, right, yeah, within all things, and especially within music, I think everything is so subjective. So mm-hmm. like what you like and don't like what you don't like and don't use what you don't like, obviously, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But I think that like there's there's a certain arrogance that comes with judging other people's artistic decisions that I like to never engage in. However, I do like to point out things that I think are uh, worthwhile indicators about whether an artistic goal was actually met or not, you know? Uh And I think that there are people who sell sell themselves short of their goals because they want to like, you know, like, like typical thing that I'll hear. Well, you know, like, uh, uh, They'll they'll sell themselves short of a goal because they're like, oh, I I don't want to use any virtual instruments on my, on my recording, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, so you want to record some violin, for example, okay, let's let's hire a violin player that that can actually play in tune and that knows how to record violin in a particular way that's going to sound good because violin, I'm sure you've you've experienced this is a very hard instrument to record. Mm-hmm. It's a very hard instrument to play, and a lot of violin players might be really really technically good, but if their intonation isn't oh, yeah. absolutely perfect, then that recording is going to sound really bad. So let's hire that violin player, or we could we could compose something in MIDI that's going to sound really nice. And in fact, if you get somebody working really professionally on on like a great VST or whatever, you can get some really dope sounding violins that can complement your record in the way that you want it to. Sure. 
And so what are we going for? Are we going for the authentic sound? In which case, I would say, let's call the first chair of the San Francisco Philharmonic and pay them $1,000 for the session. And let's see whether they come up with the thing that you really want to hear. Or should we try this out in MIDI? You know, mm-hmm. and like I again, like I think that artists that aren't willing to compromise in that way kind of like sell themselves short sometimes, unless they're actually willing to spend that thousand dollars. You know, and that, in which case I would say let's go for it, great, and let's make a social media moment out of it too. You know, and let's like tag the San Francisco Symphony with that. You know, whatever all the things that we can get out of it, but let's not. Again, let's not settle for just some shitty violin that your friend was you know, able to do on the cheap, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I just want to go back real quick to, I mean, I think it's probably a good point to wrap it up, but, um, I really, uh, appreciate that conversation about, um, kind of that arrogance and, and how artists are maybe putting out negative comments about things when ultimately they're just shooting themselves in the foot. And I know that it's, it's, you know, it's common for artists to question themselves and have doubts and a lot, you know, a lot of them face insecurity and whatnot, but like, I like this idea of, you know, looking at all sides of something, taking the good with the bad. And I think that, you know, you're really good at kind of, you know, bringing that perspective. And I appreciate you for that. And um, I'm really glad we got to to talk about all this cool stuff that um, is super valuable to, um, I mean, I can just think of a million people that would benefit from these services that you do. And um, man, send them my way, man. I'd love to talk to anybody. and, And I love talking about this stuff in general, because uh, you know, you don't always get the opportunity to really elaborate on a particular point. And so sometimes people like people look at stuff as like, oh, you're just kind of like, you know, you're saying it for the sake of saying it or whatever. And in reality, yeah. it's like I don't have the bandwidth to answer every comment and to really <laughs> like put the paragraphs out there that I'd like to put. I mean, like if I were a better writer, and I could write essays on the topic, I would maybe like be submitting articles to places and want to like get whatever my perspective is on a given thing more out there. But you know, nobody really wants to hear the whole like defense of Spotify thing. And I'm just kind of like, if, if you listen to, uh, you listen to Rick Beato's podcast recently, he was on with, uh, Joe Satriani and Joe Satriani said some really interesting shit because he asked him about Spotify and he was just like, you know what? Like, I used to listen to vinyl records so much that within a couple of months, they would, you know, they would actually, the sound would start to sound, uh, uh, like, the sound quality would go down because you play them so many times. Yeah. Like, all vinyls have oh, a certain yeah. number of My times. My vinyl's play like them. that right now, for sure. <laughs> right, totally. Yeah. And it's like, you know, Spotify basically sounds, the, every time you press the link, it sounds the same. And it never breaks, mm-hmm. you know, unless you don't have Wi-Fi in that particular moment. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there if, if you're releasing something, you basically press a click and it shows up on Spotify kind of automatically. Whereas before, you had to find, like, somebody who was going to press a certain number of vinyl for you. And that was going to be a big upfront investment. So what independent artist could actually do that? And then once you have it, you've got to send it all over the country to get it to these different record stores that will hopefully put it, you know, not behind a bunch of records that they actually want to sell, but they're going to put it, you know, in some prominent place. It's like Spotify does all that fucking work for you for (laughs) one click. And I kind of think like, again, it's not that I love Spotify. I don't love any of this stuff. I think, you know, all of it is part of like a big machine that has its pros and its cons. But you want to talk about 
less of a carbon footprint. You want to talk about a more transparent and straightforward way of like profiling the music. I mean, your 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 music is essentially you know can be next to Drake's music in the same thing. You know what I mean? Like in the same playlist or in the same uh, you know if a person creates their own playlist. You know, and 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 the technology works to the point where you don't really have to worry about will I be able to access this music, and then more importantly, you can actually access it while you are on a hike in the middle of the woods. Like you know, there's all these positive things to say about oh, it yeah. that I think are worth acknowledging from the point of view of one who's a music and content creator. Oh, I mean, f- as for, opposed to for me, you know, yeah. I mean, I I just disco- I mean, the Discover Weekly for me is just like worth it alone you know i hear so much cool music that i would have never even heard of but their algorithms are, are fantastic and then um also you know like yeah it just makes it so easy like if, if you're working with an artist and it's like hey what do you want your mix to sound like can you send me you know example of, of, of a mix that has vocals that you, they just send you a spotify link bada bing bada boom i mean it just it really does make everything so much more accessible and easy and there's a yeah, lot or of how about how stuff. about a, a gig where you got to learn right you know you've got to learn 11 songs Put together a playlist and boom, it's in your car. It's in your you're listening to it on your run. All of a sudden, right. you know those songs like you wrote them. And you didn't have to like bust out this vinyl, listen to it, and then you know bust out this other vinyl. And how are you even going to get all those songs? You know what I mean? Yeah, it's man. like it's like come on, like we have so much at our fingertips, and we complain like we're little babies. Well, know? we might have to make a, a, a Facebook post about it. <laughs> well, I, yeah. yeah to- <laughs> well, Tomas, man, it's been a really uh, it's been a pleasure, man. And um, you know, we're gonna I'm excited because we're gonna take this uh, episode out with uh, a song from. Um, cigar box man that you've been working with and uh, for everyone out there if you're interested in learning more about what tomas does you can check out sour sounds productions on facebook tomas it's been a real pleasure man thanks for dropping the knowledge bombs and keeping it positive likewise man thank you so much uh and uh yeah look forward anytime i hope that you you know this thing takes off and you have a lot of success with it you know i'm going to be hitting you up for a business consult <laughs> right on next man. conversation <laughs> right on. all right man <laughs>